Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Rutherford, Dento Legal Consultant at Dental Protection. Welcome to Risk Matters, our latest series of podcasts created specifically for dental practitioners in Australia. As the name suggests, Risk Matters is all about managing risk. In this podcast series, we will be taking your feedback and queries and putting them to leading industry experts, getting them to answer the difficult questions about managing risk and working safely. It's about what to do when managing risk matters most. In this edition, we focus on local anaesthetic and its use and possible complications. I'm joined today by Dr. Greg Marnie, who is a practicing general dentist with an academic interest in pain control and local anaesthetic, having attained a doctorate, master's, and a graduate diploma in these fields. He's held many academic and society positions in Australia and internationally, and presents on behalf of Septident. Greg provides continuing education for dentists across the world in IV inhalation and oral conscious sedation, local anaesthesia, and medical emergencies in the dental surgery. So welcome, uh, Greg, and thank you very much for coming along to share your knowledge. Uh, when Greg walked in, uh, colleagues, he handed me a draft of a book he's just written called Local Anesthetic for Dentistry. So uh, we've picked the right person here. So thanks for your time, Greg. Thanks very much, Michael, for having me and uh, giving me an opportunity to talk about local anesthetic, one of my favourite subjects. Yeah, we, 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 we dragged Greg in on this uh, on the basis of meeting him at ADX and um, we were talking about life and then within three minutes we are talking about LA toxicity. So we, we know where the area of interest lies. So I guess unless we're doing a checkup and clean or a consult, almost every other aspect of dentistry is prefaced by the administration of local anaesthetic. We check the medical history, we choose an anaesthetic that suits our needs and inject. Though not always successful, LA works for an incredible number of people, making invasive dental treatment tolerable. Um, Greg, is it as simple as that? Well, Michael, most local anaesthetics are efficacious, right? And so when we're choosing a local anaesthetic, uh, we have to take into account things like the comorbidity of the patient. We have to take into account what we are trying to achieve. How long do we need it to be numb? What teeth do we need to be numb? So in doing so, in picking the right molecule, we have to take into account also the uh, physical properties or the chemical properties of that particular drug. And that includes the PKA, lipid solubility, protein bonding, half-life, and what is the toxic dose of that particular drug? So uh, in choosing those drugs, I think we have to take into all those things. Mm -hmm. So Greg, just for those of us who have been a long way out of dental school and pharmacology, mm. what's PKA? Okay, PKA is a constant. It basically means uh, very simply uh, the closer that particular drug's PKA to the uh, physiological pH of 7.4, the better. Mm -hmm. right. So, for example, um, uh, lidocaine or lidocaine is uh, a PKA of 7.8, um, rather, sorry, 7.9, and articaine is 7.8, and mm -hmm. pivocaine is 7.7. .7. Right, okay. So they're approximating. Yeah, so essentially what will happen is if you've uh, got a PKA close to that 
that pH, physiological pH, <laughs> you'll have more ions available or more non-ionized local to cross the lipid membrane. Great. Okay. Um, so what's your opinion about local and, say, adrenaline and some medical conditions such as high blood pressure when, when you're taking these considerations? Uh, Michael, I'd like to keep my life fairly simple when I'm doing dentistry. <laughs> I, I basically, if somebody comes in and says to me, oh, I've got a heart condition or I'm taking this medication, I go, mm, maybe I won't use adrenaline on that particular person if I'm giving a block. Mm -hmm. However, mm -hmm. if I'm doing infiltrations, I really don't think it matters that much. Okay. Okay. So, um, yeah, things like um, high blood pressure, uh, things like... Uh, valvular diseases, that sort of stuff. But there are also some other conditions that we get concerned about as well. Mm -hmm. You know, thyroid toxicosis can be an issue. Mm -hmm. um, we've got uh, people who are allergic to particular drugs, and that's another issue. Okay. We might get onto those later, but just when we're chatting before we started, mm. um, you had a, a fair bit to say about adrenaline and you know, when we're talking about the possibility of things going wrong. And I think you said that it's the adrenaline. Yeah. Um, there's not much that's a contraindication for local anaesthetic. Um, it's basically if they're allergic to a particular particular drug, in, mm -hmm. in other words, particular local anaesthetic, or whether they're, particular, they're allergic to other components in that local anaesthetic, like uh, metabisulfates. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you can get a, um, latex involved as well. Yeah. Um, however, most manufacturers denature their latex bungs and, and uh, diaphragms, so you don't really have a problem. I, I don't think there's ever been a recorded case of a latex allergy when using local anaesthetics. But, okay. but it's, it's the things like um, high blood pressure, uh, coronary disease, valvular disease that you've got to be particularly concerned about. Mm -hmm. So if a patient has a true anaphylaxis, and this actually happened to uh, one of my colleagues in the practice, who, Andrea, who eventually bought and bought my practice, and thank yeah. you very much, Andrea. Um, she had a patient have a true anaphylaxis, as in you know, swollen, red face, head swelling up, um, jumped out of the chair and put his head under the sink. Um and then got the raspy, wheezing breath. So... Scary moment, I think. <laughs> she, her voice was shaking when we did a podcast 10 years after the fact. Yeah. Um, so what, what do you think the likely scenario was for that? I, I think um, it's fairly rare, and it doesn't really mean that if somebody's allergic to, say, articane, they're necessarily allergic to lidocaine mm -hmm. or lignocaine. Mm -hmm. um, however, you know, uh, the ones they're most likely to be allergic to is uh, ester-based um, local anaesthetics. Mm -hmm. um, but remember that a lot of your topical anaesthetics now are ester-based topical anaesthetics, and that is an issue. Oh, okay. So, so what happens? We put on a, some topical anaesthetic and... They get an allergic reaction. They get a, quite often. It's the reaction is localized, okay. right? So it's it's not necessarily um, how can I put it life threatening. Mm -hmm. However, it is quite can be quite distressing. Um, so what's this typical uh, presentation for that? Because I, I'm, I wasn't aware of that. So could you just talk us through that presentation? So the likely reaction to a topical anaesthetic is going to be um, increased heart rate. That's where you're going to see it. So you get the increased heart rate, okay. 
possibly decrease cardiac output, so lowering of the blood pressure. Mm-hmm. But it, mm-hmm. it will not. It usually is transient. Right? Okay. It's not there forever. But the problem is, um, I think the real issue is you know using high concentrations of ester-based local anaesthetics. Right. When I look at some of the preparations out there, there's compounding pharmacies that are producing. Um, local anaesthetics with 18% tetracaine, you know, tetracaine. So are you talking about injectable local anaesthetic? No, or this, this is, is topical t- Just purely topical. Right, okay. But they're now coming in kits where you inject them mm-hmm. without needles, you inject them with uh, into the sulcuses. Right. Now, the issue is, of course, is that if you're deep, injecting deep into sulcuses, then they're likely to have inflammation in that area, so it's an increased vascular area. Right. So yes, it, yes. it gets picked up. So should we use this as a, a warning sign not to carry on with an injection if your patient reacts to the topical? Well, it depends on what they're reacting to. If they're yeah. reacting to tetracaine or, or benzocaine, which is an ester-based one, then mm-hmm. no, not really because it's more likely, likely to um, uh, be a, a specific to ester-based. But mm-hmm. the problem is, of course, you've got a distressed patient. Yes, yes. I'm not going to proceed on that sort of situation. Oh, yeah. Look, and that's good patient management, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. yeah. Sometimes we step out of the pharmacology and say, look, what are we doing about a patient in front of us who's distressed? Well, we, you don't do dentistry. Yeah. So. Well, well, we did have a case uh, in Brisbane where um, a patient actually had uh, a local anaesthetic in, um, injection, um, a block injection, uh, and... Um, she immediately gave the, the typical response of an uh, intravascular injection where you get that momentary uh, increase in heart rate and you get this flight and fright type mm-hmm. feeling. Mm-hmm. And she was quite, you know, she was a bit distressed, but it, she calmed down and, they, and she still went numb and they mm-hmm. still did the work. So they finished the treatment and about 40 minutes later, she walked to the reception and then started convulsing, uncontrollable convulsing, right? Okay. Now, the... Dennis was cognizant of the fact to say, mm, this is not normal, mm-hmm. and called the um, ambulance service, and they came there pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that was the classic signs of somebody getting a toxic dose with okay. one vial of lignocaine. Who are Yeah, because toxic dose is their best guess, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So somebody um, may be... Uh, go off at the seven milligrams per kg, which is the recommended, but they mm-hmm. also may go off at, somebody else might go off at four milligrams, right? So most of the experts now say it's a guide only. Okay. Okay, the, the big worry is the intravascular injection. So it's very unlikely that you're ever going to get to those toxic doses with a uh, infiltration. Right, right. Yeah. But if you're getting it I, IV, mm. then that's going to lower that threshold of, you know, Absolutely. Grams because, per kg. Yeah, because once it gets to IV, it then becomes five milligrams per litre. Okay. Right. And how many litres we got? About five litres. 4.5. 4.5, okay. Yeah, yeah. All right, that's, that's bringing the sums down. Yeah. So uh, if, you, if you give somebody, say, articane into mm-hmm. a whole cartridge, 2.2 mil, mm-hmm. you can get a toxic dose. Oh, we? Yeah. Remember and, that, boys and girls, if, you, if there's anything you learn from today, um, yeah. Yeah, just be aware of it's essential. injection. Yeah, yeah, it's essential that you aspirate, aspirate and mm-hmm. aspirate. Um, so, Greg, any other areas of concern, polypharma or any other medical conditions? 
Okay. Besides the uh, coronary issues, I think we have to be cognizant of the fact that you can get drug interactions. So things like anticonvulsants can make things worse. So people who are epileptic Mm -hmm. can have Mm -hmm. issues that will bring on an epileptic uh, with adrenaline. Mm -hmm. Um, Protease inhibitors, you know, some of the HIV type drugs can can potentiate things. Um, Sulfotamines can make things like methemoglobin anemia Mm -hmm. worse. Okay. Even paracetamol can make methemoglobin anemia worse, right? Um, fortunately, the, the doses that we normally give people of, say, something like prilocaine, which is associated with that, are so low that we're not likely to get methemoglobin anemia, but it is possible, mm-hmm, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, benzodiazepines, right, um, can potentiate, particularly um, something like midazolam. Mm-hmm. If you give midazolam and you use lidocaine, it can potentiate the effects of lidocaine on the cardiovascular um, uh, tissue. Well, that's interesting because sometimes midazolam is used in IV sedations. Yes, correct. Okay, we, we're going to go on to that in the second podcast, but yeah. Um, yeah. that's interesting. Okay, yeah. now some people are still on... Um, non-selective beta blockers, something mm. like propanabol. Um, most of us, most of the patients coming in in your door will be on selective beta blockers. But if you don't have a, if you have an unselected beta blocker, it can affect you as well. Mm-hmm. Calcium channel blockers, mm-hmm. right? Um, lidocaine. Well, that's pretty common. Yeah, yeah lo- local anaesthetic drugs quite often will mimic the um, chemi- uh, calcium channel uh, blockers in in the cardiac tissues. And of course, the other one now that's coming through the door is recreational drugs. Right. Um, uh, cocaine is really bad. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, that can end up in a life-threatening situation. Mm-hmm. Um, we find that um, things like um, uh, the, the stimulants that, that kids are on now mm-hmm. um, really do, uh, do affect them uh, psychologically. They start doing weird things under local. Okay. Um, so is there a case for trying to avoid adrenaline altogether or is that overreaction? No, I think that would be an overreaction because okay. adrenaline helps make that drug work better, mm-hmm. right? It, yeah. it, it, I mean, the reason why we do it is it, it, it um, vasoconstricts the area the, in which the drug has been placed, therefore mm-hmm. the drug will last longer, mm-hmm. right? Um, it also means that if you've got vasoconstricting the area, it's not getting into the bloodstream quickly. Therefore, right, you're right. less likely to get the toxic dose. Mm-hmm, so there's mm-hmm. there's a reason why we use adrenaline. I okay. just probably wouldn't use it on people um, that have got cardiovascular disease. Right. right. Okay. Um, let's see. So the drug. Do you want me to name the? Can I name the drugs? The, yeah. Sure. I, I, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the two drugs that I would really sort of lean towards was uh, mepivacaine. Mm-hmm. Love mepipacaine. Yep. And uh, and the other one would be just uh, prilocaine uh, with felipressin. Okay, I yep. Mean, you know, felipressin doesn't have the same effects as mm-hmm. adrenaline. It will constrict the area, mm-hmm. but it uh, won't cause uh, peripheral ischemia either. Beautiful, yeah. Um, and what about articaine? I mean, if, if you look at the therapeutic guidelines, there's certainly suggestions that it's not suitable for mandibular blocks, for IDN blocks. So you've got to... Comment about that? Yeah, there's a there's a long history on that. Mm-hmm. Um, let's go back to 1976 when it was first introduced to um, Europe, mm-hmm. and it was used in Europe for 20 odd years before it was um, available in Canada and UK. Mm-hmm. Now, what happened was in Canada and UK, they found that a certain number of uh, patients were getting prolonged paras- um, 
seizure following mm -hmm. um, the blocks. Mm -hmm. And so that led to a very cautious approach by the US and Canadian and UK and Australian um, authorities to say, oh, don't use it on blocks. Mm -hmm. But when they thought about it, and it's a bit strange, this wasn't happening in Europe. You know, even though it had been in use for over 20 years, mm -hmm. they weren't seeing that in happening in Europe. And it was... Um, it's actually Professor uh, Tara Renton in yeah. UK. Do you know yes. Tara? I know Tara. Yeah. Yes. And, um, and she uh, found out that this actually wasn't articane. Articane was actually less neurotoxic than lidocaine or lignocaine. Okay. And they found out it was trauma. Mm -hmm. And in particular, it was the second needle. Right. So you're talking physical trauma or chemical Physic trauma? Physical trauma. Physical trauma. Okay. Because it's less cardiotoxic. Okay. Yeah. So I have no qualms in giving a block with articane. Mm -hmm. However, I, most of my blocks are, are with um, mepivacaine okay. because I don't have to think about the adrenaline yes. issues. Yes. Yeah. And I guess um, I should just pop in there um, that we are obliged to follow the therapeutic guidelines. So um, if that's, that's the reference book that you're going to be judged on by APRA and... Um, and any yeah, there's a significant cases. international literature to say that that's not okay. a problem. Right. We'll leave it to the individual to, to work yeah. through that. Yeah. Um, what about mix and match of local? So I guess maybe we just move on to that, whether it's a failure of local. So, you know, typically block, but you inject a IDN block and it's not effective or only partially effective. What, what's your strategy there? What, what do you suggest? Well, first thing is the mix and matching thing. Um, dentists frequently will use combinations of local anaesthetics and topicals to take advantage of the unique properties of that particular local. Um, in this situation, the dentist should be always cognizant of the fact that the systemic effects are a combination and they follow the principles of surmation. So that if we give somebody 6% of the maximum dose of a particular local anaesthetic, mm -hmm. we can only give them 40% of the second right, local right, anaesthetic. Yes, yes. So, so that's, that's a basic standard principle. Mm -hmm. So I know that some schools teach people because the metabolites are different, you don't have to worry about it, but that's actually untrue. Okay, yep. Uh, yeah. Um, so, so my yes. strategies. Yes. Okay, strategies for... Um, like when I say, so first of all, um, uh, my routinely I use buccal infiltrations because I can give them painlessly, mm -hmm. um, and it works on all areas, both maxillary and mandibular. The only time I have issues with um, giving uh, infiltrations is usually on lower sevens and eights. Okay. Um, so even sixes will go numb with art, with something like articane because it penetrates through the bone. Right. So you, you're saying like a 45 year old heavily built male, you know, MOD on a four six. Yep. Your go to would be buccal. articane, buccal articane. Okay. Yep. Um, if it was the seven or eight, definitely not, mm -hmm, right? Because mm -hmm. you get that external oblique ridge, the thickening bone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If you can see the outline of the of the roots, you know how mm -hmm, you, when mm -hmm. you look on the buckles, uh, yeah, it's going to work. Okay. okay. Um, I know that, you know, people like Stanley Melamed say you can even use it for eights, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yep. I'm not quite not, sure. Not, not on my eights, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've actually had a roof filling yep. um, on my 4.6 
with okay. just buckle up uh, infiltrations. Well, there you go. That's that's uh, proof in the pudding, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if I was giving a, a buckle infiltration and it failed, the first question I asked is, did I give them enough? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and that's usually the case because we usually give too much, not enough. Okay. Right. You know, it's a principle of sedation. It's a principle of local anaesthetics that how much do you give? You give patients enough. Mm-hmm. Right. No more than enough. Okay. It almost sounds like a weasel word, though, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, give them enough. enough. Like, yeah. Yeah. How yeah, much is it? How yeah. much is enough? Yeah. But anyway, if we get some um, uh, paresthesia, it's not quite working. I usually ask that question first. Have I given them enough? Okay. If I've given them enough, then where have I giving it? Is there something that anatomically that's stopping my local working? Like you know, the, um, uh, a tuberosity or something like that, then mm-hmm. I look at that. Um, uh, quite often we'll give a, say, uh, typically they're usually upper sixes mm-hmm. uh, on a buckle set not working, so I will give a one slightly more mesial because mm-hmm. we may have that, you know, that um, innovation going into the mesial route. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then if it doesn't work, then I give them a palatal injection. Okay. Right. So this is for the maxillary ones. So right. for the yep. Yep. for um, for mandibular injections. So if I've given a mandibular block and I've got patients getting uh, their lips a little bit tingly, mm-hmm. but it's a hot pulp, the tooth's not going numb, and mm-hmm. you go, oh, damn, you know. So what do I do then? I will give them articane, buccal, and lingual infiltrations. Okay. And so that's it, your second string. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But, okay. Yeah. And then I may even look into adjunct therapies beyond that. Right, mm-hmm. um, and those adjunct therapies may even be something as simple as some non-pharmacological uh, technique. Okay, mm. Mm. such as oh, um, say for adults, um, uh, it may be um, nitrous oxide. Okay, or yep, something sure, like that. Sure. Mm. Now, what about a, a variation on that where? You know, with a, you've got a hot pulp on a four six, mm. and you've got a profoundly numb lower lip. Um, you know, they're almost dribbling. Mm. What, what you go to there? So I guess we're saying I still, this is different from not getting profound anesthesia. I, yeah, yeah, and you still and uh, is the patient ex- exhibiting that this is. When you drill into it, this it, this is not pleasant. Oh, just just when you get that air, the turbine is spinning and the water gets on it, <laughs> yeah, that 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 sort of scenario. We've, st- we've all been there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we all have good days and bad days when it comes to blocks as well. Mm. I mean, nothing like a few failures in one day to give you give your confidence a real downer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, however, in a situation like that, what I'll do is I'll give them a, um, infiltrations both buckly and lingually. Okay. I mean, you've got to realise that. Innovation on a lower tooth can come from so many different areas. Mm-hmm. It can come from the auricular temporalis muscle. It can come from its C-lateral. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can come from the buccal nerve. It can come from the lingual nerve. It can come from the hyoglossus. It can come from the cervical. So it mm-hmm. can come from all those things. But usually buccal inf- and lingual infiltration will take care of those things. Right. Uh, what about intraligamental? Do you recommend them or do you, do you use them? Oh, it, uh, look, the last time I did an interlinkamental was, you know, uh, you were in shorts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, they, uh, I, I'm not a great fan because usually I've, I've got the interlinkamental injectors in my drawer, but I think they, they're gathering dust 
Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, uh, and I, certainly my present dental, dental assistants who only been with me for the last seven years wouldn't know what one was. Okay. Um, because I just think, you know, if you're going to inject interlinkamentally, mm-hmm. then you're really thinking about taking out that tooth, right, because you don't want to cause any damage. Okay, uh, so you're, um, you're talking permanent damage to... Permanent the, damage, yeah. Now, there is some... Um, shall we say, research out there to suggest Mm -hmm. that um, it doesn't cause permanent damage, but there's Mm -hmm. also some research that says that it does. So I'm I'm, on the the other side. And the same with um, interosseous injections, Mm -hmm. you know. um, They work. There's no doubt about it. But it's scary stuff because you've got to get in between the the roots of the teeth, uh, get into the cortical bone, right, and you're giving an IV injection. Mm -hmm. If you're Mm -hmm. giving an injection into the... Uh, into your space, you're giving an IV injection. In emergency medicine, when they, you quite often kids will come in and they need resuscitating, mm-hmm. right? And they cannot get a vein for love nor money. They will go down and drill into the bone and mm-hmm. give it into osseous injection. Yep. Yeah. Okay. I, I guess that's, I mean, I certainly was aware of that interosseous problem. And yeah. I, I mean, in my younger days, I guess I, I gave a few, but. I would always warn the patient of the possibility of tachycardia uh, before doing it. But um, that intraligamental, that's the first time I've ever heard of that. I'm personally not a fan. Ever since Articane came out, I haven't had to use it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's that's just me. Yeah. So I guess you're pushing, well, not pushing Articane, but you're certainly recommending it as a... Yeah. Your drug of choice, I guess. Yeah, it's the most popular local in the world now. Yeah, I mean the Americans are a little bit slow to pick it up, but mm-hmm. they they're moving that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but everywhere else is articane. Great. All right. Now, what about toxicity? Do we want to revisit that? Do you have you got any more thoughts on that? Um, other than the fact is that you know the one thing that we can do to prevent toxicity is actually not not do an inter- intervascular injection. Right. right. It's that that simple. Yeah. Right. Um, I, I guess I wanted to revisit it because I, I, I sort of feel it's one of the things we have absolute control over, you yeah. know, the amount of anaesthetic we inject. So we're not talking about the, you know, the reaction that you can't be prepared for or you don't expect, but, I mean, you are if you're talking about inter, uh, inter, um, venous um, injection. Of it, but, yeah. um, but we can control the amount of anaesthetic that we inject into a person. Yeah, I think, and and probably that's one of the drawbacks of Articane is that the amount you can give them in any one time is a lot less mm-hmm. um, because it's 4%, not mm-hmm. 2%. Mm-hmm. It has the same, it's still 7 milligrams per kg. It's still 5 milligrams per litre, the same as um, lidocaine, same as um, mepivacaine. I think uh, prilocaine's just slightly higher in mm-hmm. 8 milligrams per kg. Yeah. Um, yeah, I... Is this, is this information on the PDS? So you open the box and it's there? Or is it, what, what's, what's your go-to for you know, the amount of anaesthetic that we can inject? Okay. So um, there is a, I think there is a guide on the PDS, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, personally, um, if I'm giving an uh, infiltration on the maxillary teeth, I'm using about 0.3 of a cartridge. Okay. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not using a half a cartridge, just under. Right. right. If I'm further back, say where you've got more anatomical structures in the way, I'm giving half. Mm-hmm. Right. 
on lowers. I've seen every time all the new graduates that come work for me, I watch them giving local, you know, typically they're giving uh, lignocaine, mm -hmm. and I watch them giving local, and they empty the entire cartridge into mm -hmm. that patient, which mm -hmm. is totally unnecessary. Half a cartridge is fine. Okay, and I guess that's a message that Stanley Malamed always um, espoused as well. Just because it's in the cartridge doesn't, doesn't mean you have to use it. And and Stan's working with 1.7 mil cartridges as yeah, well, yeah, yeah, not 2.2. Yeah. .2. yeah. So, yeah. Um, so I guess moving on from that toxicity, then when we come back to those adverse outcomes, um, what's the most common sort of adverse outcome you're going to get from local anaesthetic injection? Okay, so the things that can happen in local is one is um, post-operative pain. Um, you could. Um, Articane in particular, if you're giving it right into the uh, uh, periosteum, then it can cause uh, post-operative pain. Mm -hmm. um, you can get uh, hematoma, mm -hmm. when you, uh, especially if people are on blood thinners. Mm -hmm. um, you can get uh, trismus. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's a few things that can happen, but they're not that common and they're quite transient in their nature. Nothing's really perfect. The only one thing that really is of, of danger is intravascular injection and toxicity. Okay. Yeah. And that true anaphylaxis, if it's a... a true anaphylaxis. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's some lessons we learned from anaphylaxis as well is that when a patient comes in and they say, oh, I'm allergic to local anaesthetic, don't dismiss that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> we actually had a case where uh, um, one of the uh, dental students did dismiss that mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. um, she was allergic, that particular patient was allergic to metabisulfites and, and she did a full-blown um, uh, anaphylactic shock and yeah. it was fortunate that she was in a hospital. Okay. It was done in a hospital clinic. Yeah. yeah. And, and look, I, I'll, I guess I'll emphasise that point too. One of the scariest moments I've had in my practice mm. was a young woman I treated since she was four years old. Mm. Uh, she moved away when she met the boyfriend, um, came back about four years later, and on the medical history she'd written that she was allergic to sulphur. Yeah. And, Which is not uncommon. And I said, but what do you mean sulphur? And she said, oh, you know, local anaesthetic. I said, what happens? And she said, well, the first time my heart stopped and I went off to hospital in an ambulance. And the second time my face blew up and I had trouble breathing. And I said, why didn't you write that it's local anaesthetic? And she said, I thought you'd understand. I thought you'd know. Mm, mm. Um, and I guess that was a real warning. If somebody says allergic to sulfur, ask the questions. It's... I mean, nothing happened, but, geez, it <laughs> took me a couple of days to settle down after that one. Yes, you took your pulse a couple of times just yeah. to make sure. <laughs> I can understand that, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. But, and, uh, and, and no harm came of it, but, boy, there was potential. It's also, um, we should be cautious of the fact is that, that one of the things that we must have, and it's in the therapeutic guidelines, is adrenaline. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you know, in, the one thing that's going to save that patient's life is adrenaline. Great. Um, yeah, so those EpiPens are worth their weight. Um, the unfortunate thing about EpiPens is they only last about they only a year. They last a little while, yeah. yeah. What sort of things and, and what's the reference for what um, drugs or, or, or devices should we have to support life in, in normal clinical practice? Well, I just go back to those, remember those data sheets and, uh, yes, in, in yes. the local anesthetic? In yes. there, it actually stipulates. Okay. But also, I think in the therapeutic guidelines, it mm -hmm. used to stipulate um, 
I haven't looked at the latest therapeutic guidelines, but it's certainly in the edition before, said you must have portable oxygen. Mm -hmm. You must have the ability to deliver that portable oxygen, mm -hmm. right, and and with positive pressure ventilation, so mm -hmm. one of those PPV valves, must, yep, yep. Uh, and oral pharyngeal airways, and and that and adrenaline are the absolute essential things that you've got to have. Okay, so an oropharyngeal airway, you mean a Goodell's? Goodell's, yep, yeah, yep, yeah. They're now called because there's different makers of it. Okay, okay. so yeah, so yeah. Well, now, I always knew it was Goodell's, but mm. um, I mean, I guess. As well as that, you have to know how to put them in. Yeah. Uh, I remember back in dental school, we were taught you put them in upside down and then rotate once you're in. Still do that? Yes, but it, it, it doesn't come, it doesn't seem intuitive. So unless you have that knowledge and have you, unless you practice, um, I mean, my practice used to do IV sedations and we would all practice um, putting an airway in. Mm. Um and, and, and maybe people don't do that if they don't do sedations, well, if it's just local anaesthetic. But it's a good thing to, to know how to I do. I think that brings us back to a really important point is that we should practice emergencies in our, de in our own dental surgery. Right? Absolutely. So when you get somebody, get somebody in to teach the CPR, which is usually a half-day course, mm -hmm. make sure that they're doing the CPR in the dental chair, making yes, sure yes. that it's your group that are handling that because it really, to be effective in CPR, you probably need about four or five people to do it. And and if, we don't, if you're not practising it, when it comes to it, it just turns to custard. Yeah. I mean, all the really poor outcomes of dental, you know, medical emergencies and dental mm -hmm. surgeries have been relating to teamwork. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, um, Holy hell! I don't know what to do here. I will call the you know the emergency services people, and they'll take care of it. And they stand back and watch the patient. Yeah, uh, look, I I agree with that absolutely. Like we used to get um, do the CPR courses, and of course the instructors always wanted to do it in the waiting room where you had heaps of room. Yeah, and we said no. We're yeah. going to be in the dental chair. Yeah, and, and we would role play. We would say, you yeah. know, Liberty. Yeah. Go and ring the ambulance and Liberty would leave the room and say, I'm calling the ambulance. So you're always aware of who was left and who had done what. Well, one of those CPR mannequins, I mean, that will actually give you feedback about how well you're pushing and whether you've got effective airways or not, mm -hmm. they're about 400 bucks. They're not expensive when yeah, we consider yeah. what we, we spend on it. Mm -hmm. The other thing you'll notice that the trainers will do is they'll have you on the floor. Yes, yes. Now, the problem with that, of course, is it's a damn sight easier to do CPR on the floor than it is in a dental chair. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's why we and, – and the dental chair should – and I think they all are now rated for CPR. Okay. Yeah. Yep. And, and I guess that's just on that – if you had a patient have a heart attack in the chair, this is getting a bit off topic, but would you try and get them onto a flat surface on the floor or would you just use the dental chair? Sooner I do the CPR, the better. The sooner right, I get a, right. a defibrillator on that patient, the better. Okay. Right. So I, I wouldn't worry because, you know, generally speaking, that patient's going to be more than 100 kilos and you're trying to shift a 100 pa kilo patient onto a dental, on the floor and try, nah. No, I, I can I, understand not, that. We, 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 in a former life, uh, we used to have an anaesthetist come into our rooms and do general anaesthetics. Mm -hmm. And apart from all the other uh, criteria, one of his was, if he thought this person was too big to be able to manhandle well unconscious, he wasn't prepared to uh, do the general anaesthetic. And we respected that. I mean, that's that's looking ahead and thinking about 
Yeah. Not everything's going to go right, but what are you going to do if it goes wrong? Yep, so. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, before we start, especially with sedations and general anesthetics, we always had a team meeting. Mm-hmm. And the team was, if it hits the fan, what are we going to do? Who's yep. go- what's your job? What's your job? Mm-hmm. Right? So they all knew what to do. Yep. Right? And it's probably... You know, I've comforted upon even general dentists that are doing normal things mm-hmm. to every now and again when they do their CPR training to sort of say, well, okay, what are we going to do? The biggest problem is what happens on Saturday morning? Yes. You've yes, got you've yes. got your junior dentist mm-hmm. and your junior DA. Who's also the receptionist. Who's also acting as a receptionist and somebody yes. somebody has a turn. Yeah. It, it, that, it, that's the scary bit. Yeah. That, that's a very good point because we are, we we all we all practice wherever when everyone's going to be there. Yeah, but the, yeah, yeah, good but, point. Yeah. Well, let's go, let's go to something a little more mundane. We, we we're not unconscious. We haven't had a heart attack. Um, this is going back to basics, but you're putting in a uh, inferior dental block. Yes, and your patient flinches, so they've had a zap. Mm-hmm. What's your advice? Get out of there. Right. <laughs> just withdraw. Okay. okay. Just withdraw slightly. I mean, you totally probably or just come back a few mils. Just come back a few mils yeah. because yeah. you've you've jagged the nerve, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the the real issue will be remember it's the trauma that causes the the problem, mm-hmm. and the reason why the second needle used to give um, was because patients didn't feel you actually. Right. You didn't yes. get that yes. jab, right? And. Um, uh, certainly if you've gone in, you've hit bone, then you withdraw slightly, mm-hmm. um, there's a chance that what's happened is you've done a little fish hook on the end of your, of, yes, of your, yes. of your needle and that in withdrawing it back, you've got a really good agent to start tearing apart um, inferior dental nerve. So, That's a very good point. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah but definitely just withdraw. Okay. And, and, and I'm just going to go through a cascade here. So mm-hmm. what if your patient rings you the next day and says, look, I'm still numb? Okay. Right. In that case, and that normally the first thing is you, you, know, you sort of say, oh my goodness, that, that's, that's terrible for you. And mm. you've got to show all the empathy that you mm. possibly can. Mm-hmm. You ask the patient to come back and then you map where that is numb, right? right. And so you the, do that on within 24 hours. So I, I would, yeah, if it's more than, say, six to eight hours, I'd probably mm-hmm. start doing it. Unless I've used something like bepivacaine or, or that, I would, I would definitely yep. do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'd just map where it's, it's numb and try to assure the patient that this is likely to be transient. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, um, if it's not, then I think I'd refer it off to a specialist. Great. Yeah. So I guess I'll just jump in there from a medico-legal point of view we absolutely say bring your patient back. Yeah. I mean, you've got to get them in there. You've got to reassure them. You've got to look them in the eye and explain what it might mean um, and what you're going to do about it. So um, so you'd hop, put them off to a fax max, an OMFS? Normally, yes, yep. yeah. But that's actually quite a rare event now. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, have you experienced a lot oh, of yeah, yeah. Man- but I guess... I mean, in this role, people don't ring you up to tell you that things are going swimmingly well. Um, we only ever hear the dark side or, or that the things that go wrong. So um, having uh, a members ring and say it was from a block anaesthetic and my patient's still numb several days later is, is not uncommon. Yeah. Most of the times it's through um, surgery and aids and things like that and occasionally implants. 
Yeah. But n- not not that uncommon that we, we get them from a blocker. Yeah. yeah, and lingual nerve quite often? Uh, yes. Yeah, yes. because you, that's the one that's in greatest variation and where it may lie. Mm-hmm. And so quite often taking out eights can, can prang that lingual yeah. nerve. Um, so going back to that, if it was, say, the block anaesthetic, so you, you did a restoration, so yeah. there's no hint that it's any physical trauma from removing a tooth. Yeah. If you had prolonged anaesthesia past 24 hours, you'd be looking at referring at that stage? I would be looking to ring Fax Max yeah. and mm-hmm. first up and say, this is what's happened. Mm-hmm. What uh, Are you happy to see this patient or, mm-hmm. or can you actually recommend somebody for that patient to see? And sometimes it's a neurologist. Yes, yes. Um, in those cases. I think I have, was involved in one case where um, a patient was uh, given a Gow Gates block, mm-hmm. which, as you know, is a quite high block. I, I mean, it's a um, I used to use it a lot pre um, Articane, mm-hmm. and um, they missed the actual condylophobia, and they went through the coronoid notch, yeah, and end up injecting the local into the um, uh, masseter. Uh, and it, and the fascia there, thinking that the fascia was actually bone, right? Okay. And, and that patient ended up with um, permanent damage. Oh, yes, yeah. I think that was a payout. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. um, look, we agree absolutely with that idea of of the referral because um, I guess from a, a risk management perspective, one you're getting an independent expert who will give your patient the best chance of a good outcome. But apart from anything else, once that patient starts wondering whether you did something wrong or once you know, Auntie Una has um, suggested that or the next door neighbour, mm-hmm. you, you've got an independent opinion here about what's going on. And um, so you, it's good for the patient's management, it's good for their outcome, but it's also good for their psyche to get it independently confirmed that this is one of those unfortunate and unpredictable you know, adverse events, if that, if that is what it is. Yeah. I think that also comes back to the issue of consent. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I, I read somewhere where you actually, like I said, if you didn't write it down, it didn't happen. That's exactly <laughs> and, right, yes. Uh, I remember, remember um, looking at that, um, and in fact, I think I even quoted you. Oh, good on you, good <laughs> on you. At some stage. Uh, anyway, um, quite often, you know, we as dentists don't actually get the consent that we really should get when we give local anaesthetic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've got written consent and there is there are written consent forms. I mm-hmm. mean, I think Queensland Health has, actually has a written consent form for local anaesthetic. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally speaking, as dentists, we don't do that. And so, uh, and they rely on the verbal consent. Right. Right. Now, the verbal consent, as far as I am aware, and you may correct me, is that it have to be almost word for word telling people what are the possible problems that could occur with this local anaesthetic, et cetera, et cetera, and uh, are you happy for me to to continue? Now, that would have to be, I would think, in your practice manual. That That would be a very good idea. Um, Mm. Where we get concerned is when people write down risk and warnings given Um, because if that's ever challenged legally, it's what risk and warnings were given. Yeah. How do you know that on that particular day for that particular patient you gave the same that you say you do every time? 
Yeah. Uh, when, actually, when I was looking into this, I, I, I reviewed my practices. <laughs> <laughs> I had all the risk and, and warnings when yeah. for, say, something like a, a um, extraction, mm-hmm. a great big thing. The paperwork was just enormous. And then um, uh, and that's why I went to the verbal consent, but I had it in my practice manual and always, of course, had a witness. Yeah. So you'd give risk and warnings for local anaesthetic? Absolutely. And, and and could you just talk it through? You're about to give me an injection, so. Uh, um, well, first of all, I normally ask the, pa- um, the patient whether they no- would, would like local anaesthetic for their, mm-hmm. their, um, their filling. And I said, you know, I, and I ask them, you know, are you aware of, of the issues? And nine times out of ten they don't, they say no. Mm-hmm. And I sort of said, well, really the, the, the issues with local anaesthetic are really quite um, almost non-existent, but, you know, you can have issues with heart condition and, you know, conditions like thyrotoxicosis. You don't have any of that, so I don't think you'll have any any problems. I usually just couch it like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so introduce the idea that yeah, there's yeah, a possibility. Yeah, and leave it open to the patient to ask questions. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah. So they, you know, if they've got any, you know, that's the next thing, have you got any concerns about Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I normally will yeah. finish with. Yeah, it, it's surprising the different levels you see of of, of your adverse outcomes and the reporting of it. Um, I, I did work in a clinic which I won't name, but uh, a government clinic where for tooth extraction, um, death was on the list of possible adverse outcomes, and I was always surprised that nobody ever asked me why or, or how, but. They were happy to look at that and then um, and, and then sign off on it. I mean, I always felt obliged to mention that it was very unlikely. Um, but yeah. that's a- actually, when I was looking into it, also I found a, an American consent form that actually said that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I wouldn't sign it. No, no. <laughs> so, um, just moving on, then I guess when we have people that have that prolonged um, anesthesia or paresthesia mm. afterwards. And we get a Faxmax opinion. Look, occasionally we get um, our members, dentists, ring up and say that they have put patients on oral steroids to try and improve the income outcome of, uh, of that continuing paresthesia. Do you, do you have any thoughts about that? Um, actually, no, Michael. I don't have any um, scope on that at all. It's okay. beyond, right. beyond my area of expertise. Right, so right. Yep. Yep. Okay. No, that's fair enough. So I guess that would probably be an indication that for most of us as general dentists, it is beyond our scope and maybe more appropriately handled by a Faxmax surgeon, a neurologist, or even a general medical practitioner. I would think you'd be going for a neurologist if you're starting to do that sort of thing. But anyway, yeah. that's that's me. Yeah. Um. So um, I think we've had a pretty good chat about that. Um, you sort of wonder how long you can talk to talk about local anaesthetic. Um, Greg, after 40 years of practice, uh, you've still taught me a few things <laughs> and probably reminded me of, of a lot more. So... Look, we really appreciate your time, and and thank you for, um, for for all your all your all your efforts today. Um, this is very relevant to us, and it's very helpful. Um, thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Michael, and thank you for the opportunity to talk to you about local anaesthetic. 
And thank you all for listening. And we do hope this podcast was helpful to you. And we look forward to sharing more guidance with you in the future. If you like Dental Protection Podcasts and you'd like to hear more, please subscribe and leave a review.